Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Yeah, it's going well and and this week hopefully the satellite technology will be a miracle because last week we couldn't Mm. record um, because I was without internet in my house which has caused much consternation um, mainly because the two small children I live with who are now dependent on uh, Wi-Fi and, and devices... Uh, like iPads and so on and so forth, um, were intolerable. Uh, I had to talk to them because <laughs> uh, they didn't just have their faces in like the Sims or whatever it is the fuck they do these days. But yeah, it also meant that like um, all my kind of film and TV watching was offline, which is something that I don't want to have to experience again. I had to go into the attic and get my DVDs of Parks and Recreation out and find where we'd left off on Amazon Prime and actually get the disc out and put it in the player and then actually swap it over at the end of each... It was just... It was a whole thing, and I don't really want to talk about it. You were thrown back to the dark ages of the mid-2000s. Yeah, like watching stuff in standard definition, Ed, like, and having to do things to a more like higher degree of effort. That is not <laughs> how things work. If I have to go to extra effort to go into an attic to get uh, like a box of DVDs out, I want that to be 4K. <laughs> I think I've earned that. Yeah, I've uh, been catching up on movies for awards consideration. Um, so I've been watching a lot of screeners and that is quite a, a novelty to just kind of get packages with DVDs in and you have to be like, oh, I have to remember, I have to hook my DVD player up because I don't use it for anything. <laughs> Mm. I, I very rarely use it for anything, so having to connect it all and then think, okay, uh, how does this work? Okay, I put it in and press play, and sometimes they autoplay, sometimes they give you like a whole list of uh, legal concerns about uh, what you're, you are and are not allowed to do with it, which I'm pretty sure no critic has ever read. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly some treat the... Uh, treat the the sanctity of the screener with uh, less decorum than perhaps they should. For example, there have been numerous instances of people trying to sell their DVD for your consideration screeners of Louis C.K.'s I Love You Daddy on eBay, which uh, is, uh, I mean, faux pas is is a very light term for it because it is illegal to sell uh, a screener for that because of the, 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 the contracts you have to sign with critics organizations and studios but also that particular film you know is like why would you want to profit like hundreds of dollars off of that mm. yeah and who's buying that exactly yeah all these like rabid louis ck fans or mra dudes who are just kind of like ah these sjws have stopped me from watching this movie by this pervert <laughs> yeah i'll just I'm have gonna... to settle for the next casey affleck movie <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, oh that was that was something on Twitter as well. There was someone someone on Twitter was like uh they 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 said so because I I liked Casey Affleck's performance in Manchester by the Sea that makes me a bad person, which is like I mean there's a there's a philosophical argument to be had about like the question of whether or not enjoying problematic art is, you know, is morally wrong or not, but it was just like such the most kind of like privileged white dude way of phrasing that pre- that question, I uh, really it pissed me off for days. <laughs> mm, yeah, just because really... I like Manhattan doesn't mean you know I'm a paedophile. Yeah, mm. it's just fucking ridiculous. 
it's like, oh yes, you're the victim in all of this. Yeah, you're the one who's really suffered because some people have said, hey, maybe you shouldn't support the uh, art made by this guy who has, at the very least, has some deep-seated problems in his life. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of deep-seated sexual problems, Ed, who's who's yeah. next on the chopping block for in the uh, the sexual assault merry-go-round? Well, this is uh, a few weeks old at this point because obviously we were uh, out next week, but it was like huge so like so uh, it would be strange if we didn't talk about it considering how we've talked about all of the other cases of uh serial sexual harassers or assaulters being outed but john lassiter has uh, stepped down from being the or has taken a leave of absence you know however you want to phrase it from being the head of pixar because of uh, a lot of stories which have subsequently come out about him being uh, very inappropriate with people who work at Pixar and people like Rashida Jones coming forward and saying that she stopped working with Pixar. Initially, it was reported because he made unwanted advances on her and she said it was more just that she didn't like the culture there. She felt that it was a culture that didn't value women and, and people of colour, uh, which is one of those things that as soon as someone says it, you're like, oh yeah, they have like almost never had a woman direct one of their movies and when they did, it was Brenda Chapman for brave and she was fired halfway through or i think only one person of color has directed a movie by theirs and i think those are concerns that people have had for a long time i certainly like once it was pointed out to me i thought yeah that doesn't sound great but you kind of wonder if like well you know it's it's hard to change the system and these movies take years to make so like concerns in the culture would take a time a while to percolate but in light of this you think oh yeah maybe there was something a lot more rotten at the core of a company that uh, certainly for me, and I think a lot of people of my generation really came to embody, uh, you know, kind of a pinnacle of art and fun and kind of like a, a good atmosphere, creative atmosphere. And then, like, yeah, that that's not so much the case now. Mm. Yeah, was Were they writing Toy Story 4, Rashida Jones and their, her creative partner? They were, and I believe they still have, they're still going to have writing credit because of, like, arbitration or whatever, like, because they wrote the first draft but uh, that they haven't been involved actively with the production of that movie for a couple of years at this point. Right, okay. Yeah, like you say, it's, it's uh, again, um, a, you know, kind of a deeply depressing revelation about something you thought stood for uh, everything good in movies. You could always rely on Pixar to, to kind of give you something wholesome. Uh, and it turned out that, um, yeah, the guy at the head of it, who is... he? He's still at Pixar. Did he leave to run Disney? I can't remember. He... Kind of straddles both, but it was like he he took over running Walt Disney Animation, basically, but still had a a, a hand in guiding what Pixar was doing. But right. yeah, he was he was kind of like the head of of Walt Disney Animation for for about ten years or so, I think, going back to the acquisition of Pixar by Disney, which I think took place about two thousand seven, two thousand eight, just after mm. after Cars. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he hasn't directed it. He, he directed Cars, didn't he? Did he do Cars 2? He directed Cars, co-directed Cars 2. I don't think he had anything to do with Cars 3. I think Cars 2 may have been the last thing he directed. Right. But he, he okay. had directed uh, Toy Story and I think A Bug's Life and Toy Story 2. So he he was very kind of obviously... And, and obviously he has been part of their... A central part of their brain trust that has guided all of their projects since... So he was a big creative force at Pixar, but, you know, I think uh, it's been revealed that now that 
all of the image that they projected of it as a kind of like this fun, cool place to work, and everyone's on scooters and everything. Like, I think in retrospect now, you look at it and think, oh, so it was just like every other shitty Silicon Valley company, <laughs> but because they made a project that wasn't outwardly harmful to the world, uh, I think people like me were more willing to kind of like say, oh, yeah, that seems fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's he's stepped down and he's kind of on a like leave of absence, is he? Kind of officially, do you think he'll come back? Uh, I would be surprised, but also... Uh, kind of not surprised, I guess, if he came back in the sense that, like, if the media is as kind of tuned in to these kind of issues in six months' time, then I would be very surprised if he came back because it would just throw up an outroar, but uproar. But if like things have died down in that time, I wouldn't be surprised if he kind of like quietly came back and was working behind the scenes in a kind of a Devon Faraci kind of way. Mm. And it, there'd be there'd have to be some resistance to that, surely. I would, you would hope so, because uh, you know Disney are such a image conscious company. I think they would try not to be associated with someone who has that sort of kind of black mark against them. But at the same time, they also just put out a Johnny Depp Pirates movie. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, uh, even though we had a week off, the sexual assault revelations in Hollywood did not. No, they are, they are, they keep going, and uh, you know based on the euthanisms being used around uh, the Freddie Mercury biopic, there uh, there may be more uh, coming in the next couple of days. Well, I've not, I've, you're going to have to fill me in on that one, Ed. I'm not, I'm not caught up with that one. Okay, uh, so Brian Singer is directing the Freddie Mercury biopic with uh, Rami oh, Malek. I didn't and, know he was doing that. Yeah, he is. he took over from whoever, because like for, it, it's a project that's been kind of bouncing around for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they finally started filming it, and now it's been put on hold due to quote unquote health issues. And, right. Uh, a lot of people are taking that to mean that uh, that that some revelation is going to come out because there've been lots of rumours about Brian Singer that have kind of percolated and been out there in the wild for a long time. Yeah. But we'll we'll see <laughs> if we're talking about him on next week's episode. Then they definitely came out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. In uh, kind of happier news, uh, there were a couple of uh, announcements of shows being renewed. We got uh, The Good Place, the yeah. Mike Shaw TV show set in a kind of a an afterlife with one of the most fun and likeable casts on television has been renewed for a third season. And the much more successful, but also very well liked, uh, Netflix show uh, Stranger Things has been renewed for a third season. The Stranger Things is really not that surprising the first season was a phenomenon the second people has been pretty well enjoyed and, and has done really well for netflix uh good place always feels like uh you know we're back into that parks and rec community thing where you think it's really well liked and it sort of does okay is it gonna survive and it, it ends up being a case of like oh well nbc don't really have anything else so mm. it's going to keep chugging along and i'm i'm glad that it is because that show uh is uh fantastic and joyful yeah, it's the the a good place. Um, the, sorry, the good place. When I started watching it, um, and you get to the point in which there is a um, twist, mm. um, and which I won't reveal for those of you who haven't seen it. Um, there's a twist, and which you kind of realise, oh, oh, yes, of course, because if they hadn't done this, this would show would have been over by the end of the first season. 
because uh, mm. this would have run out. This would have been very hard to keep going uh, on this premise alone. Um, and I'm going to be really interested to see where it goes with the when it comes back from its mid-season break because it's it's um, painted itself into the, into a corner before that twist, uh, and then just amazingly got out with an act of daring do. Um, and now I can see it slowly painting itself into another one. Mm. And I want to see what act of kind of uh, writing linguistics, uh, sorry, gymnastics, um, that they can pull off to get out of that because it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah, I think what I've really enjoyed about it is, like you say, that there's there's a twist and there's kind of a big twist. But I think what's really nice about the show is that it, it they have repeatedly done almost like what Breaking Bad used to do, which is where they set up a situation and then you think, okay, this is going to take a while to unfurl and then far quicker than you would ever have expected. Suddenly it's like, oh no, we've reversed that and now the thing that everyone was keeping secret, everyone knows, or these two characters have like revealed something to each other uh, and that makes it surprisingly pacey for a for a sitcom in terms of like narrative progression. It's like, it's always moving along, there's always some new thing to uncover and uh, and so it it feels, you know, really propulsive whilst also having just reams and reams of hilarious, weird jokes in there, including some of the best sign gags <laughs> I've seen uh, since the heyday of The Simpsons. Yeah, uh, so that is... Sorry, that I was going to say that all the sign gags in uh, The Good Place are, you know, a rich theme for people uh, mining for pub quiz team names. Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, Megan Amram, who we've mentioned on the show in the past and who is a writer for that show, posted just her long list of, I think she had to come up with names that were all based on broth, maybe, or soup, or chowder, maybe. Uh, And it was like, she just wrote, she just posted on Twitter, like a list of the hundred different alternate names they had to come up with for all these different shops. Uh, And it was was delightful to me, just because I love... I know, like, the Simpsons writers always talk about how the the most painful thing in the world is having to come up with jokes that just appear on signs for half a second because they take hours and mm. hardly anyone's going to see them. But it's always nice to see, oh, yeah, these people are just, like, allowing them their minds to kind of float free for any pun they can come up with and then uh, winnowing down to the absolute choicest ones. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good show. And, and like you say, it has got the most likeable cast on television at the moment, um, with the exception of um, the character whose name I forget, who has the incredibly annoying British accent, and then you look her up on Wikipedia and you find out she's actually British and that's how she really talks. Oh, Tahani. Yeah, Tahani. Yes. It's like, um, I'm not really sure what it is about American audiences who need to hear um, English people talking like that, because, um, yeah, it's kind of grating. Yeah, she's uh, she has the same problem that Charlie Hunnam had when he was on Undeclared, where he is British, but <laughs> whenever he talks, he's like, who's this guy from fucking Michigan putting our accent to wherever? It does really sound... It sounds, like, weirdly tin-eared, and I don't know if it's, like, that the dialogue hits you weird, <laughs> and it's like, it's like, that isn't really how an English person would talk. Um, mm. But, yeah, it was... Uh, I, I don't mind... I, I, I like her character and i think she's a she's a very funny charming performer but yeah the first episode when she showed up was like is she really english Mm. that seems seems weird and then you look it up it's like oh yeah jamila jamil is definitely english (laughs) she's yeah uh, because she used to be on like t4 or something yeah she is um i think she had a radio one show as Mm. well i think yeah Uh, she's one of those youth presenters that they have now for those kids 
Uh, they're all into the culture now. Yeah, it's the ones um, you least suspect will make the crossover. It's like her, Cat Dealey, who's uh, kind of a big deal over here now because she hosts Dancing with the Stars, maybe? One does of those, she? One of those dancing programs, yeah. Uh, and one of my favourite things was uh, she did an interview at the AV Club years ago and they were talking about her early work and she started talking about hosting SMTV Live. Mm. And that they were saying, because I think it was the first year that Dancing with the Stars was going to be like filmed live and broadcast live. And they were saying like, oh, you know, doing live TV must be really stressful. And she was like, well, when I was in the UK, I used to do this three hour long live show every every weekend. Uh, so this is actually pretty easy to be. And the interviewer was clearly very shocked by the fact that that was her first job in television. <laughs> Mm. was being given this the demands of trying to keep children entertained for three hours between episodes of Pokemon. Yeah, using a game called Wonky Donkey. Yeah, Wonky Donkey, <laughs> uh, and a child's version of Mastermind, and uh, a parody of, of Friends called Chums, where there was always <laughs> a joke where they would just draw boobs on a, <laughs> on a plexiglass uh, wall at one point. Uh, a, a ridiculous show, but uh, mm. something that I always used to it always entertain seems, me. Even though I was like too old for that show, every time I caught it, it always seemed to me to be like in the right spirit for children. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like if you if you address children like they're people rather than talk down to them, yeah, um, you kind of get this weird anarchic kind of energy that comes out, and and those guys kind of had it, I think. Yeah, that, that's I think was what really appealed to me is that there was that just even though it was very, very, very structured because they had to do the same kind of bits every week because otherwise it would just drive you insane if you had to kind of think of new material every <laughs> week for 40-odd weeks of the year or however often that show was on. Um, they always kind of threw themselves into it with abandon and there was always that sense of, of that things could go completely wrong at any moment, like someone's wig would fall off and they'd have to kind of address it and they'd have to do a little bit of business. So it had that feel of, I don't know, like kids putting on a show for their parents mm. and just being like hey we're doing this fun thing just kind of see us and uh i, I always used to really enjoy uh, smtv live yeah i didn't think that we'd get to smtv live <laughs> um uh, on this podcast but it's only, it's taken us like nearly six years but here we go we landed so uh and and also uh you know in terms of stranger things i haven't seen season two yet but uh how what what did you think of stranger things do you think it, it's going to be able to sustain a third season uh, tough to sustain a third season because it barely sustained a second season. I mm. like the show. Um, I've said to you kind of a few times off air, it's it's very obvious why people don't like it. It does lean uh, very heavily on the uh, nostalgia crutch, um, uh, appealing to um, kind of people with the most disposable income who are alive during the 80s now who will be like, oh, <laughs> man, this is feels so authentic and, and kind of reminds me of everything that I... Uh, enjoyed as a kid and it, it captures that feeling so expertly um it, you have to doff your cap in some way and they they uh kind of rode the line in the first series of how much they um leaned on that nostalgia for me but the second season um it was there but they, they, it was kind of unapologetic in places um when you've essentially got a reenactment of the scene the halloween scene from et but the kids are dressed as ghostbusters mm. um who have they've arrived on their goonies bikes it's just like okay i get it um and it was it the thing is it's still a really good show and the um cast is so winsome uh the kids are so winsome and even the new additions to the cast this year have been um kind of really well received um but the the two kind of adult leads uh played by david harbour and winona Ryder, 
Um, their performances are both excellent, and I think if if the show is going to go beyond the um, uh, over just being a kind of a nostalgia fest, then it's going to go through those two and their performances because their characters are you know becoming more interesting and 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 the performances are excellent. But both those two actors are now in demand, so how long they'll stick around for, I don't know. And where they're going to go uh, with the with the the story in the uh, in the third season, I'm not sure because. Um, it has much less of a dramatic um, cliffhanger between the first, uh, the second and third as there was between the first and second. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I just kind of don't want them to retread this, the same ground. But I could spend more time with those characters and, and, and in Hawkins. Um, I just hope that the, the Duffer brothers give us a um, good enough reason to go back and a good enough reason to care. And, and more importantly, some stakes... Um, which is, you know, when you when you have a whole bunch of likable child characters, it's very difficult to kill any of them off or put them in um, anything other than danger that they can kind of escape with some kind of, like, drama. But mm. um, I don't want to see, like, the kids killed off, but, like, you kind of know it's going to be okay, which is why it's a kind of very safe show to watch. Um, but, yeah, it's I, I kind of really want to see more of that, but they do need to kick it into another gear. I think they said they were going to do four seasons. That's their ultimate endgame. Um, but, yeah, we'll see how the third one happens. I imagine it's probably quite an expensive show to make now. Mm, I guess if that's the kind of negotiation between trying to get a an Amblin-style tone where in something like The Goonies... You were like, they're going on an adventure, but they're kids, it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And the more darker modern sensibility that, you know, people want, supposedly want kind of something a bit grittier, uh, which is kind of reflected, I guess, in the adult and teen uh, characters where there is a chance that they could die, like obviously Barb in the first season. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I guess there is that tension when the the cast members that everyone likes the most are also the ones that you kind of have to coddle uh, a fair bit. Uh, it does limit what you can do. Um, but I, I like I like the idea of them having a set number of seasons in mind, because even if the show ends up like not maintaining a level of quality over a period of time, at least there's a chance, like, okay, well, at least we can wrap this up. Uh, and Netflix are probably less willing to cut a successful show loose uh, unless it's uh, racked by scandal, <laughs> as we have found out recently. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think, I think somehow it's become Netflix's kind of like tentpole TV show, and mm. we'll have to fill that House of Cards void. I think when when that um, kind of grinds to a close. Yeah, until the uh, the gory Sabrina the Teenage Witch series starts up. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Riverdale the, spin-off. Yeah, yeah. That could happen. Don't it, give them it ideas. Is it, it is happening. Get, oh, yeah. that's not a joke. Shit. It's got a two-season order starting up sometime next year. Oh, fuck. Because uh, apparently Archie Comics have been putting out like a, a grittier Sabrina comic in recent years and everyone says it's great and it's like really fun. And in the same way that like that um, Snagglepuss comic where he's like a gay playwright everyone says is really really good even though it's insane <laughs> uh, I think that that's kind of what the Sabrina thing is like this probably shouldn't work but it's actually really cool so hmm. Netflix have uh, jumped on the Riverdale bandwagon by uh, by going all in on that 
Well, so. okay. Well, yeah, we'll have to see how that pans out. Yeah, I it, mean, like, there's worse ideas. Uh, but, mm-hmm. And, like, Netflix have got to find something. <laughs> if uh, if shows are finishing because they have natural end dates or because uh, the people making them are awful, then uh, you probably need to start finding new material somewhere. Yeah, yeah. This is probably why um, American Vandal got ordered for a second, an improbable second season mm. um, that, like, makes literally no sense in any <laughs> conceivable way, but they're like, shit, we need to do something. Have him draw more dicks. Yeah. Uh so uh, before we get on to our main topic, uh, I think we should just briefly touch on the fact that it's award season. As I said at the start, you know, I got uh, some, I'm watching screeners, I'm trying to catch up on stuff. And the New York Film Critics Circle, which is a kind of a somewhat more august body than the uh, the Online Film Critics Society. But still, you know, we still hand out awards, it's fine. Um, but uh, they handed out their awards this week. It's kind of the first big critical awards of the of the season and it kind of gives us a sense of what the movies are that people are going to be talking about for the next four months so we'll just quickly run through them uh best first film went to jordan peele for get out mm-hmm. uh, best foreign language went to bpm best non-fiction film went to faces places which is the new agnes varda documentary um and uh that's quite exciting because it means that she could pull a harold russell and uh, win a honorary oscar and a competitive oscar in the same year which is not something that generally happens no. uh best animated film went to coco best cinematography went to mudbound best supporting actor went for willem dafoe for the florida project uh, best supporting actress went to tiffany haddish for girls trip best actor went to timothy chalamet for call me by your name saoirse ronan for ladybird best screenplay went to paul thomas anderson for phantom thread which is a movie that no one is allowed to talk about at the moment because of an embargo but people seem to like because they're voting for it best director went to sean baker for the florida project and best picture went to ladybird so it already we're seeing sort of like three or four films that are being picked out and i mean i know that the the new york film critics circle isn't uh, emblematic of the entire kind of voting body and all the various people who are going to weigh in on this sort of stuff. But I like the fact that so far there's not too many obvious Oscar choices in there. Like the, none of those movies that I just mentioned feel like you'd point to that and say, oh yeah, that's totally going to walk away with all the Oscars. Like they don't mm. feel stodgy or anything. No, they all feel kind of relatively small movies as well. None of the prestige pictures are, are kind of making a a play for those categories. Gary Oldman was going to be a very strong contender. Um, uh, Timothy Chalamet won just uh, tonight at the LA Critics uh, Award Circle as well. That's happening now, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, Timothy Chalamet, that, he's making a, re- like a real niche for that that performance. Is the best supporting or best actor he'll be going for there? He's uh, best actor. Yeah, okay. So yeah, it's... Maybe it's the moonlight effect of uh, smaller, more interesting movies, possibly. Um, or maybe it's just all big films are terrible or made by sex offenders. <laughs> yeah, possibly. It, it could also just be that... Um, I mean, I think the moonlight effect is definitely uh, occurring in terms of the critics' bodies, because I think mm. they're all realising, oh, like we don't have to vote for the kind of prestige uh, uh, period movies or things that are about you know, just kind of like actor showcases for someone who's like, oh, I've put on a fat suit or, oh, I've, <laughs> I'm pretending to, you know, they're not going to give it to Norbit. Uh, no, they're not They're not kind of saying, oh, this person is pretending to have some sort of ailment in order to win awards. Like all of those movies that I just mentioned are fairly human stories and 
or all their movies that exist in uh, genres that don't really have don't usually get respect from the Oscars in kind of a major way and uh, whether or not in like maybe the Academy being somewhat more conservative in general won't take the bait and we'll kind of go we'll, we'll see like Victorian Abdul uh, sweep um, or at <laughs> least get a bunch of nominees nominations but it'd be nice if uh, you know come January when uh, people get kind of bleary eyed uh, in LA to kind of hear someone read out a list of nominations that if we do get like a get out gets a best picture nomination or ladybird i think ladybird seems at this point to be something of a sure thing because it's doing really well at the box office and it literally everyone likes it <laughs> i think it still has a hundred percent of rotten tomatoes so it's kind of hard to uh, argue with the aggregation at least um but it'd be nice if, if some of those movies get a lot of attention and it's not just you know your darkest hours or whatnot Mm, yeah, yeah, and it's um, gonna. I think earlier on in the race, you might think, well, something like Get Out and Lady Bird could be, you know, perhaps they might get a nod in the the screenplay categories. But to talk about them now as being possible best picture contenders is really mm. pleasing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I've had Get Out pegged as a nominee and possibly winner for best original for a screenplay for most of the year because I kind of thought okay if it's going to get any attention it's going to be there uh, if it get, ends up getting kind of token nominations from the academy because I think oh yeah this was successful we should probably recognize it but at this point you know you think well what other movie has been talked about as much as that this year like mm. I don't think there's many that could be you know that could uh, lay claim to having more relevance to cinema and culture in general than get out than in America in 2017 so it'd be crazy for them not to recognise it uh, mm. and especially in terms of the broader conversations about the makeup of the Academy and their failure to re- in the past to recognise people of colour Yeah and according to the Golden Globes it's the best comedy slash musical since The Martian <laughs> Yep, very funny movie um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah, I think that's, that's such a weird one because it, it does point to the limitations of having drama and comedy where it's like how about a really a movie that exists in some really uncomfortable space where it's really hard to classify mm-hmm. uh i guess nothing or um <laughs> or, or there is a case of the the studio saying uh which do we have a better chance in if we run it in comedy probably got a pretty good chance of getting a nomination and a win there so yeah it, it's kind of like a weird bit of awards award season cynicism creeping in around a movie that I'm just happy to see in the conversation. Because when that came out in March, February, whenever it came out... Yeah, it's I pretty early the year, and to have that kind of heat still around it is pretty pretty kind of uh, impressive. Yeah, it's like not since, well, The Hurt Locker, which came out in the summer, have uh, you seen a movie come out like earlier in the year and still maintain a lot of attention. So mm. that's... Bloomhouse uh, have got to do something with their money. <laughs> Oh yeah, Christ! Yeah, so they might as well just fun it all into uh, an Oscar campaign. Mm, they're certainly not giving out budgets. No, no. Or like maybe uh, M Night Shyamalan's next movie will break like ten million dollars budget. Oh God, perish the thought. <laughs> uh, and before, and uh, one final bit of news, uh, and which will lead us in nicely into our main topic: the Avengers uh, Infinity War trailer debuted to uh, much anticipation. I believe it probably. I think I saw somewhere that it broke records for a number of views within a certain period of time. Uh, and uh, I, it kind of uh, feels like 
the it is in like narrative terms a culmination of this kind of 10 year project that marvel have been behind but it really does feel like a culmination of a, a whole era of movie making in terms of the way in which those movies have reshaped how hollywood's business model functions uh, and it's really strange at this point to look back on you know where the series started with a risky choice of robert D- uh, downey jr to play iron man at a point when he was you know, a real risk and a very low point in his career and everyone having being uncertain if Iron Man or the Hulk movie was going to be a success uh, and how it was ever going to possibly compete with the Batman movies to now it being this uh, gargantuan of pop culture that everyone's just kind of like, wow, we're going to see some serious shit happen in uh, May of next year in terms of box office and uh, just witnessing what the the guys who directed Arrested Development can do with like a $300 million budget. Mm, and it's kind of weird to think that, that we are witnessing a bit of film history because we kind of are. Um, mm. it's, it's a very audacious thing to have done. Uh, to, and I think it runs exactly May 2018 is when Iron Man, uh, 2008 is when Iron Man came out and May 2018 is when Avengers Infinity War comes out. Mm. Now, like I've kind of doubted the marvel guys at, at literally every turn and yeah. on this show many times I remember before the avengers came out i said how are they gonna you know balance a movie with you know a guy who flies around in a robot suit with a norse god and a dude from the war who throws a shield <laughs> like uh, aliens so that's not gonna work there's gonna be too many people in that and then it worked really well and not only did it work really well it was like super enjoyable and kind of template for a lot of other movies in kind of um yeah in a bad way as we'll find out later in this episode um um that followed it but it's uh then also with uh guardians of the galaxy before that came out both you and i i think said like this might be a bit weird as a leap for for marvel this if this works then they can pretty much get away with anything and, and not only did that work it turned out to be like one of the most enjoyable marvel movies full stop and now we're at the point where we're gonna see the guardians of the galaxy shoehorned into a movie that features 46 i think it is <laughs> marvel superheroes and that now seems like the surest bet in the world mm. because uh and you know they managed to get like spider-man back in there's ant-man's in there but it's like a comedy character um and yeah thor who's the norse god has just come off like one of the funniest films of the year um and now is teaming up with you know the talking raccoon that we thought was going to be too strange uh to work in a mainstream like comic book movie but here we are ed and this seems like a great place for them to leave it mm. because i think they've said something along the lines of this is the end of the cycle Mm-hmm. And uh, um, this is definitely a lot of the actors won't be coming back. It was very telling that um, Jeremy Renner's uh, Hawkeye wasn't in the trailer. They've been hinting at his departure from the Avengers for a while now. Uh, yeah. Over the last few films, I think he'll probably be one of the people to go. I think we will be left with the kind of the new guard. I think maybe like Captain America and Thor might hang over, but I think Iron Man and and the Hulk and, and people like that might start to fade away. And that's good, I guess. We've we've, we've got 18 films out of these people. Um, and that is a staggering achievement. To, and none of them have been terrible. Yeah, it, it really is. Like when uh, 
the first Iron Man came out and at the, you had the end, you had, you know, Samuel L. Jackson, which has been wants to talk to him about the Avengers initiative. And like, it was like, wow, this, this is a, a crazy thing to try and do to kind of like put out your first movie and then say, Hey, we're going to create a cinematic equivalent of the comics universe where all these characters exist in one universe and they can cross over all their movies and, you know, they're going to have like adventures together and you just kind of like, yeah, right. That's never going to work. That's never going to happen. And then like you say, we're at this point where they have 46 discrete characters who people know. And in in many cases, you know, have, have followed over multiple movies. All the movies have made money uh, in one form or another, like even the, the Hulk movie, which I don't think did all that well, has probably seen a profit at this point. Uh, it is it is incredible what Marvel have achieved uh, through all of this, and like even with like you can you can question whether or not the impact they've had on cinema in general is good or bad. Uh, there's certainly arguments to be made for either point, but that doesn't diminish the fact that they've managed to shepherd a gargantuan project from conception to realization over ten years. Uh, making all of us doubting Thomases <laughs> look like absolute fools mm. uh, uh, and just like triumphing over and over, uh, which is really quite incredible. Yeah, that reminds me actually, the uh, supplementary piece of news, the uh, every frame of paintings guys are calling it uh, a day. Mm. I don't or know if you saw that. They'd, they'd kind of called it a day like a year ago because they haven't put out a movie, a, a video in a year, but they, they made it official, yeah. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, that's sad. Yeah, yeah, it is sad. Like reading that, I mean, I read that the, the, they put out basically the script for what would have been their final video, but they could never figure out how to make it. Uh, laying out that essentially, you know, that it was getting too difficult and, and restrictive, and it wasn't really fun for them anymore. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was it was very sad. But it was interesting that like, you know they ended on that video they did about the Marvel. Uh, uh, soundtracks or scores mm. and how samey it was and it's like oh that that was like probably the video of theirs that ended up making the most impact at least because I think immediately afterwards everyone start, starts talking about how crappy and samey all the scores sound and uh, it's certainly something I pay more attention to now and also it's that thing like when you're watching Thor Ragnarok and you think, hey, this score actually sounds pretty cool. <laughs> and like, it does feel as if someone at Marvel saw that video and thought, yeah, maybe we should try and put a little more effort into how these movies sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A rare case of critics actually influencing uh, um, the output. And it's, well, I think that's probably more uh, takeaway TT. Mm. Um, did, you, did you hear his... Um, uh, oh, God, it was... I don't know if it was this week or last week. But he uh, gave an interview um, and they cut some footage together to Immigrant Song and they played it for the the execs <laughs> at Marvel and the Marvel guys were like, hey, that song's really good. Can we get something that sounds like that? And he was like, you're being serious. And they were like, none of them had ever heard Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin before. That's crazy. Yeah, have these you, people uh, are in charge of things. Have you seen the uh, the memes people have done of, of playing Immigrant Song over scenes from other movies and demonstrating <laughs> how it makes it more badass? No, I haven't. The the best one in terms of it actually making a scene more badass is uh, Return of the Jedi when they break off of the skiff. All right, it, it kicks in at the moment that uh, R two fires the lightsaber to Luke, and uh, mm-hmm. it works fantastically well. It's really really fun. Uh, but the the funniest one was uh, they took a scene from season seven of Kirby Enthusiasm when. Right. Uh, 
Jerry and Larry have their like stare off where Jerry's trying to figure out if he's lying to him. Mm-hmm. And instead of the music playing over it, it's like it's really, really funny. Yeah, I think that could be the new Walk of Life project. Do you remember that? Yeah. The Immigrant Song Project. Yeah, or uh, my own little project of setting uh, images, uh, the the video of uh, Ray Fiennes dancing in a bigger splash to whatever song. I should do, yeah, I should do Immigrant Song for that. Haven't uh, <laughs> haven't done one of those in a while. Anyway, this is getting off 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 the rails. We've uh, already gone to SMTV Live today. I think <laughs> we could probably stay on the path a bit better. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so like we said. Uh, Marvel have had a kind of a great success in shepherding their own cinematic universe from from beginning to end, uh, whereas DC have not. Um, mm. la- a few weeks ago now, Justice League came out, the culmination of their first phase of their cinematic universe. There were five. This is their fifth movie. Uh, I think I got that right. Yeah, five movies. Yeah. Uh, this is their fifth movie since 2013, where they started with uh, Zack Snyder's Man of Steel, which was kind of like indifferently received did okay at the box office then uh in 2016 they kind of kicked up a gear with batman versus superman which did really well at the box office but everyone hated uh and then suicide squad ditto um so much so that we did two whole episodes on it yeah last year's like it was just like it was such the the absolute dregs of cinematic culture that we had to do two episodes on it and then this year they kind of righted the ship a bit with Wonder Woman, which uh, I for one thought was was really fantastic. Uh, some problems with the the final act aside, uh, I thought that was that was really great, and that Gal Gadot was uh, was fantastic in the lead role. Uh, and then this was all meant to build up to their big triumph, which would be Justice League. They would be uniting the six, all of these characters, most of which we've never met, <laughs> mm-hmm. and which we suddenly have to care about, would be joining together to fight something. Uh, and then, yeah, opened to ninety three point eight million. The first of the DC movies to earn to open earn less than a hundred million at the box office is currently earned one hundred ninety seven point three million uh, in the US. Which, uh, for those keeping track at home, is less than the Avengers op- earned in its first three days. Wow. So, it's not been the f- success they probably were hoping for. Yeah, um, and you and I disagree on this, Ed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it didn't make that amount of money because it's fucking terrible. I would not say it's terrible. I would say it's the second best of their movies, but obviously it's like Wonder Woman, then seventh foot of kind <laughs> of like grayscale shit, and then Justice League then another like five foot of it mm. <laughs> then batman versus superman and then you kind of dig all the way through <laughs> to the other side of the earth <laughs> you come out the other side and then you end up you stop around venus um, mm. <laughs> that's where suicide squad is so there is a pretty broad spectrum of the quality of their movies to be fair yeah it's really like saying this is the second best uh, dc ex- expanded universe movie like gonorrhea is the second best STD to have. <laughs> it's kind. Of, yeah. It kind of feels a little bit like that. Like Wonder Woman, um, I thought was good, but it was just good. Mm. Like if that was in the Marvel ones, that would be one of them solid, 
um, kind of entries that you'd be like, yep, that's good. That sets up a lot of pieces, but it's by no means a, a see like a high point. But our expectations of the Marvel films are kind of high now, I guess. Yeah. Um, whereas they're so low um, for the DC stuff that Wonder Woman is being heralded as some masterpiece. Um, and it is good. Like, it, it clearly, um, the DC movies struggle with um, the fact that a lot of them are directed by Zack Snyder, mm-hmm. who can't seem to shoot a woman unless it's from behind and below. Um, yeah. Which is really a problem. Um, and, yeah, it re- you can really tell it's directed by someone who isn't just like, uh, a, you know, a kind of like quivering bro dude. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah, it's kind of... Um, I would I would say that Justice League is probably the second best one, but um, yeah, there's a long way down to go to to the others. Yeah, uh, it's it certainly is instructive in terms of because obviously Wonder Woman famously was directed by Patty Jenkins, and it's very instructive. I think uh, media classes uh, around the world would be foolish not to illustrate the idea of the male gaze by taking images from this film and contrasting them with images in Wonder Woman. It's mm. kind of like this is what happens when you have someone direct this movie who is uh, who has kind of like more humanistic sensibilities or this is and this is one where it's by someone who uh, is directing a movie with the idea of like okay what do teenage boys like yeah and how can I make this kind of like this shot of this kind of powerful woman who we've just seen in a movie kind of like stand her own against everyone and be and kind of held up as this kind of like paragon of female power. How can we make her into kind of like a sex object? Mm. Yeah. And Zack Snyder seems to do this because he thinks teenage boys just like CGI and upskirt, Mm. which, well, you know, I don't want to talk to teenage boys, but like, come on. Um, (laughs) Like yeah, it, and it's it's the one of my biggest problems with Justice League um, is it was just such a mess. Mm-hmm. It was it seemed to like we said about the Avengers. I even said it earlier that how on earth could the Avengers before it came out and before I'd seen it? Well, I was way too cynical about superhero movies. Um, I said, how on earth could the Avengers balance all these characters pulling the film in different directions? Well, Justice League is an example of how you can't do that. They have yeah. um, five different characters pulling the films in, pulling the film and the ideas in different directions um, and uh, in different tones. Um, I'm really not sure what the tone is, and, and like they, uh, Zack Snyder obviously left the the, the film um, under kind of pretty tragic circumstances. Um, and Joss Whedon came in and, and supervised some reshoots, and it felt like a lot of the more light-hearted, comedic kind of uh, the Justice League hanging around, having banter sequences, um, were kind of shoehorned in to kind of bring a bit of levity to it. And yeah. they might not have been, but it certainly felt that way because when it shifts in from a tone of like this kind of grim dark cgi violence that you can barely make out because it's so badly edited and kind of like shot in such a confusing manner i have no idea what's happening to these like scenes where uh they stick ezra miller in it and uh just say please try and make some jokes and it doesn't work like that you can't just have those two things because when they rub up together 
it causes kind of like this cognitive dissonance that you're like, oh, okay, I'm confused now. I'm not sure what I should be feeling for these people or the story that's happening. Mm. And I found it to be really jarring um, watching Justice League because I really liked uh, Gail Gadot in, in Wonder Woman, but I felt like she was kind of relegated in this movie to being the, the person who always said, no, we can't do this. Why do you guys try and do this? Let's try basically being the mum of the group, mm. uh, rather being the only person who can do anything right. Um, Aquaman was just, well, I mean, he was shirtless for some of it. I can't really <laughs> describe his character in any pun intended, depth. Um, Cyborg was just like a walking USB stick. Like He was just there to unlock bits of the plot that the other characters mm-hmm. couldn't access with their technology. And Ezra Miller seemed to be in there for comedic relief, which didn't sit particularly well against everything else. So yeah, for me, like not really any of it worked at all. Mm. I think in terms of like picking apart why the movie doesn't work. I think a lot of people are blaming Joss Whedon. They're saying, like, you know, because he came in and he reshot it, and it's clear that the, end, the even the location of the final fight in the movie has changed rapid, drastically from even the trailers that came up for it last year. Last year, the final fight was clearly taking place on some sort of spaceship, which was being manned by, manned by uh, Steppenwolf, mm-hmm. uh, there to encourage people to go and watch some art housey kind of theatre in Chicago, clearly. <laughs> Yeah, or uh, fans of like seventies rock. Yeah, uh, I'm sure there's other meanings of Steppenwolf, but I think we've covered the popular ones. Mm. Um, and in this, it takes place in the cooling tower of a power plant in Russia somewhere. Yeah, um, and it's very clearly when you like compare the shots of people have done, you say, "Oh yeah, they have just green screened this entire location behind them, and this this plot has been radically reshaped uh, in the editing." And a lot of people are blaming Joss Whedon for this because he came in and, and I think a lot of the DC fanboys want to say, like, oh, they tried to marvel at the movie and look how bad it was. I think it's like, calm down. But also, I think uh, it's all kind of stemming from the original sin of how the DC universe has been shaped. Because, like, if you compare it to the Marvel thing, Marvel kind of sowed the seeds for the Avengers and everything from that first movie. You have that final scene with Nick Fury showing up and then the the subsequent movies, they kind of like branch out on that. Man of Steel, clearly a standalone movie. There was no sense at the time that they were going to try and do crossover stuff or if they did, it would be kind of more deliberate. And then they did nothing for two years uh, in terms of releasing movies as opposed to Marvel who took 2009 off, but then they had one movie in 2010. They had two movies in 2000. Uh, in 2011 and all of them building towards okay we're going to introduce these characters now so that when the Avengers start we can pretty much hit the the ground running and the way DC did it was okay we're kind of deciding mid-race that we're going we're going to change horses mid-race essentially and say okay this isn't going to be a standalone movie it's going to be we're going to have Batman introduced and also Wonder Woman and hint at all this other stuff and then we're going to have another movie it has no effect on this plot at all so it's just wasted time Mm. Uh, and then this movie instead of having these characters be established and you kind of know their stories and you're kind of you care about them the first like 40 minutes is just like okay we're going to have to introduce you to these characters anew and each time it's just kind of like oh when's the fucking story going to start and so I think a lot of that stems from that. And, and obviously the, the, the reshoots and everything didn't help. But I think uh, even if they had put out, like, 
if Zack Snyder had, had completed the movie and it had come out how he intended and it would have been three hours long or whatever, I think you still would have had to suffer through the fact that you don't know who the fuck all these characters are anyway. Like, they all are essentially completely new. We've only ever glimpsed them before. And then suddenly you have to spend half your movie saying, okay, these are these guys. They've all got to be put together. We've got to put together the team. Some of them are going to refuse the call uh, and then decide to do it anyway. Uh, and so like, I think, yeah, it was. It's, it's, it's a mess because the entire approach that DC have taken to this thing have been a mess is not just because the production of this one movie was kind of uh, waylaid by uh, unexpected tragedy. Mm. And it commits the sin of, of essentially just retreading the exact same plot of the Avengers, whereas mm-hmm. like a group of zero superheroes have to repel uh, a kind of like sinister threat um, of someone who is after a magic box. Um, yeah. and <laughs> but this the time there's three of them. Yeah, this time there's three of them. Let's just multiply it. But the the Avengers obviously gets a lot of flack because the um, the the bad guys in in the Avengers, the first one, it kind of led to a bit of a um, a kind of recurring theme in superhero movies, which is the bad guys are just assholes from out of space, CGI assholes from out of space who want something on Earth. That is it, and and it's becoming a little tiresome, but the Justice League movie seems to have thought, hey, that was a good idea, and just done it, even now everyone is bored of a big bad guy who doesn't have any personality whatsoever, who wants to uh, use an army of CGI flying monsters to you know, you know, carry out his nefarious plan. In this instance, he, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Ed, he, he wants to turn Earth into a living hell so he mm-hmm. can live there, to, so it's more like his own planet, where Basically. any any research he could have done, he could have just moved to Telford and, <laughs> and just cut out the middleman. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like, if you, if you can't get on board with the ridiculous premises of the villains, then why on earth? Where are the stakes for the heroes to fight against? Um, and especially like. We get flashbacks about like the first time all these uh, the the Atlanteans and the the, the Amazons and, and the, the the world of men in the Lord of the Rings flashback uh, defeated this threat last time and uh, the Wonder Women the Wonder Women and the Amazons they they buried this box in like a chamber that required like 150 like really strong women to like lift the pillars and you could never get into it. The Atlanteans buried it at the bottom of the sea and it was like guarded in this kind of weird like tidal chamber and then the humans just threw it in a hole in the ground <laughs> like like literally just covered it with like a handful of dirt and we're like yeah fuck it yeah well no one will find that surely it'll be fine mm. yeah and that that did, it did feel like like you say it cobbled together from bits of the avengers and bits of the lord of the rings even like the the way in which the like disposal of the mother boxes i have to keep remembering to call them mother boxes because i've heard so many people joke they should be called martha boxes (laughs) um but yeah the mother boxes uh the way in which they're hidden it really does just smack of of the way in which peter jackson depicted all of the the various rings being handed out to all the different races in the the first lord of the rings movie it does feel like something that has been cobbled together from ideas that other people did much better um Mm. I think another like major problem with the first half of this movie, which I think must come from the way in which it was kind of put together, um, you know, and in the edit, is 
there's not a huge amount of urgency to Batman's recruiting of all of the various members of the Justice League. Mm. Like, we start with him on a rooftop chasing after uh, Bill Tench from uh, Mindhunter. Mindhunters, yeah. Uh, and, like, holding him and saying, oh, you're full of fear, you'll attract one of these parademons, and then the parademon explodes and leaves behind a sign of three boxes, which isn't particularly well explained. And so he knows that there's some sort of alien invasion occurring and he knows that something bad is happening. But then every conversation he has with like Aquaman or whatever is like, yeah, you know, shit's going down. Maybe something will happen. Who knows? Like, maybe you could join us. Mm. <laughs> it's just like, there's not a huge amount of, uh, of energy to their performance. Whereas like the, you know, to, to not to compare it to the Avengers, but it's hard not to like Avengers starts with Loki showing up and stealing the Tesseract and a big action sequence and Kobe Smulders almost dying. And it's like, okay, yeah, okay, now we're, we're jumping into this thing and then they'll assemble the team together. That's great. Whereas this, it really is just kind of like, none of these arseholes really seem to have much of a kind of drive to them, except for Wonder Woman, who does actually get a action sequence in which she saves a bunch of people and does some heroic stuff, which then seems out of place with later on where they're talking about how she hasn't done anything for 100 years. Mm, Whereas, yeah. like... She did just save, like, a hundred people from a bunch of bank robbers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who, like, handily explained to them what they were and who they were, what what their actions were. Do you remember they were like, oh, yeah, we're a local terrorist group who... And then it's just like, oh, Jesus Christ. And write this into the fucking yeah. dialogue. And it's also... It also posits this idea of, like, oh, the whole world's lost hope since Superman died. And, you know, it's it's all become grim and fearful. And it's like, but we just had two movies in which everyone hated Superman. Mm. And the world was, was like, just filled with angst and fear and hate anyway. It's like, I, it, it's, it's really weird because all of the DC movies have been, like, reactions to the previous DC movie in some respect. Like, with Batman versus Superman, it was like, okay, people didn't like the, the fact that it was, like, a... a essentially a Batman movie, but Superman was the star, so we'll add Batman in. It was like, well, no, we didn't like it because it was kind of, like, grim and boring. And then they were like, okay, they didn't like how grim and boring it is, so we'll do Suicide Squad as kind of, like, the funny one. Uh, And then this one, it's like, okay, they didn't like the nihilistic stuff, so let's make it kind of light. So it's it's basically trying to undo what Batman versus Superman was, but also trying to act as if the world of Batman versus Superman was entirely different to the one that everyone's seen. So it's kind of suffering from this weird internal logic whiplash. Hmm. Yeah. And like I said before, it's, it's really hard to care about some of those characters as well. Like Mm -hmm. I really wanted to like, like Aquaman because Jason Momoa is like a cool actor and like cyborg. Um, like I was up for that character, but like I, don't really know anything about them. Hmm. Like, I mean, and Aquaman's getting his own movie, which is seems strange because all he can just kind of do is fly around with a fork and swim. <laughs> and like, there's there doesn't seem what is there to him. What 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 about him? Are we going to find out that's interesting? Like, I'm asking you genuinely. What is that character interesting? Does he just live underwater? Is that it? Uh, it he's he's interesting in certain kind of treatments of him, like they talk about how he can talk to fish and things like that, and he is like, 
like any kind of like golden age comics hero, like it's, it's on its face a ridiculous character, but various people have found fun ways of making him more like at the, at making the burden of being kind of like a hero or being a representative of a lost race or a, a hidden race, you know, mm-hmm. interesting. So there is stuff there. There is, there is stuff that you can do, but yeah, you do, you do have to wonder if they're looking at the way Justice League is going and just like scratching their heads, just something, you know, how do we, how do we dig ourselves out of this one? Yeah. Cause like cut Aquaman out of the story. And it doesn't really matter very much because Steppenwolf gets the box from the Atlanteans anyway. Mm, it doesn't it, matter it, if he's there or not. Yeah, the whole point of the movie seems to be we need Superman because without him, we are fucking useless. <laughs> we yeah. have a fish man, we have an ill-defined cyborg guy and someone who can run fast and someone who's rich. Uh, Wonder Woman sort of can compete with him, but also he's Superman. Like, he's so ridiculously overpowered that no one can even possibly stand up to him. Uh, mm. And it really is, like, uh, that that whole thing about how uh, every Marvel movie has to kind of explain why Thor isn't around. Because if Thor's around, then he could probably solve a lot of their problems. Because <laughs> he's, mm. he's just the god of thunder. He's very, very powerful. And yeah. there's very little you can do to stop him. Can we talk a little bit about the CGI moustache removal. Oh, absolutely. Because, for those of you who don't know, um, so when the reshoots by um, uh, Joss Whedon were announced and he came on board to kind of do some post-production stuff, um, Henry Henry Cavill, who was uh, who played Superman, was working on Mission Impossible 6, Mm-hmm. And he was—he uh, had grown a a very fetching moustache for the part. And Paramount Studios, who own um, uh, the Mission Impossible uh, franchise, uh, said, "You sure you can have him for this uh, period of time while we've either finished filming or on downtime?" But he is under no circumstances allowed to shave his moustache off. Which yeah. obviously is a big fuck you from one studio to another, but also led to the solution. Uh, it's funny because they they spent lots of money, I'm sure, and lots of man hours digitally removing a moustache from a man's face, which is hilarious given how easy it is to put a fake moustache on a bald lip. <laughs> and, I mean, it's hilarious. But the thing is, once you know that that happened and you watch the movie, and once you realise that's why Superman's face looks slightly strange, you can't stop looking at it. Because mm. it's not every scene, uh, it's just a few of the scenes, and it's all right when he doesn't talk, but when he does talk, he has this really kind of uncanny valley effect on his face. And if that's your savior of humanity and the plot and all the characters in the film, it's really, really wise not to make him look like he has got a couple of watsits stuck under his top <laughs> lip. Yeah, it's also like a really handy signifier. Like, okay, this stuff was. Or Joss Whedon, because his face is messed up entirely. Mm. Um, so, like, the opening scene of two kids interviewing him for a podcast. Yeah. Um, a podcast on is, mobile phones. Yes. Yeah, weird. But mm. also kind of funny. But um, Or the scene of him and Lois. Lois Lane shows up after they've revived Superman using one of these mother boxes and electricity. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> Uh, in, a, in a, a scheme that is very poorly explained and does have that kind of Prometheus thing of saying, 
okay, so we're going to do a thing that no one's ever attempted with technology no one understands and has never tried before, and assumingly it's going to work. Great. Um, But he... um, but uh, but like he wakes up and he's obviously disorientated and he sees the rest of the Justice League there and end up ends up kind of fighting them for a bit and then Lois Le- then uh, Batman says to Alfred that you know oh we need to bring in the big guns you think oh is he gonna gonna just drop a ton of uh, of uh, kryptonite on him to weaken him and then no uh, a car pulls up and Lois Lane gets out and that kind of breaks his uh, determination to murder everyone. And then they fly off to a farm and they have kind of a conversation. And it's, it's I, I thought, a kind of a very functional, sweet scene between the two of them of him kind of adjusting to being alive again. Uh, and and But then you can you see his face throughout the entire scene. It's like, yeah, this was all just Whedon because, like you say, he, he has what's-it-face. <laughs> what's-it-face can be the new name for that. Um, can, <laughs> can we just talk about one of the biggest crimes that Justice League commits is having Amy Adams in your movie and having her just, oh, just being like, she looks like she just wants to jump out of a window in every scene because <laughs> she is she is completely extraneous to everything. She is moved, used only as like a kind of Pavlovian motivator for, uh, for Superman. She's like one of the greatest actors of her generation. And she is, uh, I think uh, someone, I read a review somewhere saying like, imagine having that, that actor and that power at your disposal and introducing her character with her back to camera making coffee <laughs> to talk about the plot. Yeah, and also saying that she's just not ready to win a little Pulitzer. <laughs> yeah, she's, and she's, she's not ready to... writing things about, well, like articles about dogs on skateboards and stuff. Um, yeah. Because that's what you do if you've won a Pulitzer and you've lost your taste for it, then you obviously you kind of... Yeah, take a step down, like covering provincial news stories. Yeah, because there have you know there've been stories in the comics where Superman has died, and and there've been whole arcs of which are about the impact that it has on people in his life. And I think there's you know you could you could do a pretty good Superman movie that for the first half was, or for for a big chunk of it was, you know Lois Lane kind of dealing with her sense of loss and grief. And really, all it understands of loss and grief with her character is that at one point she kind of mournfully rubs a ha- hand over a pillow. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, she, like, is in her office and she's just like, oh, you know, I just, I'm just i just not up to taking on a big story. I'm happy just writing puff pieces. And she's kind of like, this is not a nuanced understanding of human psychology. It's not even a very broad understanding of human psychology. It's just, oh, shit, we have to write some scenes for Lois Lane, don't we? Um, puppies? Girls write like puppies. So maybe she's writing about puppies. Yeah, that's what she's doing. That's what Lois Lane is up to. Uh, or or even also Diane Lane as well, another great actress who is on screen for, I would say, about 30 seconds over the entirety of the movie instead of getting to maybe see her and Lois have a scene together in which they talk about you know their sense of loss over this. Uh, she just kind of like drives up in a truck, sees that Clark's still alive, gives him a hug, and then he flies off to fight you know and do some bullshit uh it really is <laughs> do some bullshit that is exactly it, what happens it is really a movie that that wastes like a huge amount of of talent to to no great end uh even like the newcomers like ray fisher who plays the plays cyborg he does like 
he's good in the role and i think yeah i could see them building a movie around this guy but at the same time the entire point of that character is oh he kind of doesn't know what his powers are (laughs) and they can be pretty much anything so whatever the plot needs him to be that's what he can do Mm, yeah yeah he is he is the the multi-tool of the group he is there just to fix the problems that requires some kind of like magic bullet which he can like fancifully grow out of his arms Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah or they can just activate a defense system he doesn't know exists so that he can shoot at superman and start a fight up kind of with very little provocation mm, yeah absolutely this was a shocking use of the memory of prince and david bowie in the opening of that film <laughs> yeah. like do not do that that is like that is that is poor fucking form man you don't put those two guys in a it's fucking Zack Snyder movie and say that Superman was the same as Prince or David Bowie. That's bullshit. In, in the, the the crass most crass way possible in like a <laughs> like the National Enquirer story about like aliens leaving us. Oh, and it's just kind of like, oh, that's that's really bad. And I think that also that may kick off the scene of two racists bashing up a shop. <laughs> Is that mm. like as one of the single maybe two scenes to indicate that the world's going to shit is that one shop gets messed up yeah and there's um, like a homeless dude and that's it there's just a homeless dude who says he's got a little sign that says i tried or something hasn't he yeah it's it's not really convincing the idea it's like oh the whole world's the, you know lost hope since superman dies like eh, i don't know it just kind of looks like the world mm, <laughs> like, yeah doesn't seem that markedly worse from the world that we saw in the previous movie where you know disabled Wayne Enterprises workers just climb up a statue and start spray painting it. Mm. And can we talk about like if 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 you're gonna call New York Gotham City and you have like Metropolis, then you can't have David Bowie and, and Prince. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it, it super work. weird. Yeah. yeah. Again it just you can't make jokes like that in a in a universe where you've set everything out a different way because it just jars together. Yeah, and especially, like, you know, the the Marvel movies get away with it because, like, okay, it takes place in, quote-unquote, our world. So you could maybe have a reference to to Bowie or whatever or someone listens to a real song. But, yeah, in this one... Also, let's talk about how bad... Like, I mean, the music choices in this weren't as egregious as Suicide Squad where it was literally, like, if there is a single moment of silence, (laughs) we have to put in a song from the Warners catalogue. But... I don't think I've seen a worse edited together sequence in a movie than uh, Aquaman drinking, diving into the water to save a boat, said to Icky Thump oh, by, by the White, White Stripes. Stripes. Yeah. Which is a song I like, but it's just like, this isn't a particular, it's a very like low tempo song. Mm. And to- it's like, well, it's the only use of like popular music, like one of maybe one or two like uses of popular music outside of the score. And it's just like, hmm, what? Why this particular song? Like, it really does feel as if they were just like scrambling around, and it was the the, the last song, or maybe it was like the temp track, and like something like this. Maybe Seven Nation Army. They couldn't afford it. Yeah, Seven Nation Army. No, that I don't think that was used yeah. in the trailers. Maybe I think there was a White Stripe. No, Hardest Button to Button was used in the trailers. Right, they just, okay. they had to get some White Stripes in there. Um, yeah, contractually contractually obliged White Stripes. <laughs> um. Yeah, well, that's the thing about Aquaman's movie. It's all going to be done with Lego, mm. so it's going to be, it's going to be. Oh, I was just serious. Oh, yeah, there are actual movies that are made of Lego now. That's not mm. as not as good a joke as it was in two thousand and one. Um, 
but but I, I uh, in terms of things I liked in this movie, uh, I did quite like the music. It was Danny Elfman this time used mm-hmm. his uh, original theme for Batman, the Tim Burton movie, uh, which is one of my favourite pieces of film music ever, and that kind of shaped the. Uh, the, the soundscape of the movie. He also used pieces of the John Williams score for Superman, particularly during the the final fight against Steppenwolf, uh, which was pretty nice. I kind of like it was nice hearing a uh, score for a, for a, for uh, this DCU or DCEU, whatever it's called, where it wasn't just kind of the the kind of the sludge that we've come to expect from Hans Zimmer or uh, wall to wall pop songs. <laughs> Mm, yeah i'll tell you something that bothered me no end and um it's bothered more people on twitter it was pointed out before i saw the film by uh emma thrower who some of you might know from the empire podcast mm. and it was she kind of said it and i didn't really get what it meant because i not seen the movie yet but then as soon as i saw it i was like oh jesus christ that's gonna bother me more than anything which is there's a character in it who's a janitor who works at the labs where Cyborg's dad works, where Cyborg was turned from a, uh, a kind of a high school corpse into a uh, superhero robot monster. Um, and the janitor, when he first appears and says something to one of the characters, is wearing a name badge with a different face on it to mm-hmm. his own face. And I saw it, and I remembered what Emma had said, and I was like, oh, oh okay, right. I've noticed that. And then he's in a scene about two minutes later when he's kind of in the, the the kind of lab at night on his own. And I was like, oh, it's going to turn out that, you know, that's a bad guy. And he's, um, you know, he maybe went into the body of the, the, the real janitor and, um, you know, maybe didn't have time to change the badge. So, like, that's his like, alien face or whatever. But no, he just got kidnapped. And then yeah. was... Uh, and it's like... They just had that's such an easy problem. If you can fix a moustache with CGI, you can print out a laminate. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You can fix that problem. But now I'm just obsessed with who the guy was on the badge. Was he like the actor they originally had in the role and he got fired for some kind of indiscretion backstage? And then they've got this up, just uh, the actual cleaner from, from the set to play the role, but they don't have time to change the name badge for the first scene. But they changed it for the second scene i was like what is happening with this name badge which is indicative of how bad the film is because that's all i cared about <laughs> yeah it does feel um like i think the, the the whole film in general just feels very slapdash it does mm. really feel as if they had a, a a much longer cut that was mandated to be two hours long because they were like yeah people complained about the, the other movies being too long and dour so they had to cut it down and it the the jumps in tone and place and plot are all like bizarre as a result then you know there's just that that general sense of everyone involved panicking over you know the fact that the other movies weren't that well received and trying to make it a bit more like the movies that people like but the tone's not gelling and like Joss Whedon who clearly did a lot to reshape it because he got a credit as a like a story credit which takes a lot uh, to get uh, because of the WGA rules, he must have like redone a huge amount of the movie. But he still has to work with the raw materials, and there's only so much you can do. So it does feel as if I don't know if they'd had another year, maybe they could have hammered together something that was was better and more coherent. But ultimately, because they decided that it had to come out in November of 2017, that uh, they had no other option but to just go with what they had, uh, and. Uh, 
yeah, what they had wasn't very good. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm. I wonder. I do wonder whether they handed over the keys to Whedon and gave him so much because it's like twenty five million dollars. I think they said the reshoots cost. That's not an insignificant amount. Mm. Um. I wonder whether or not. Um. Why they decided to give him that much, kind of like like leeway well, I don't know whether like the original stuff didn't work or whether they just needed to like lighten it up or or what but whatever was asked of him to do he did it and it ultimately makes the film more confusing mm. it just it just kind of it changes it from what probably would have been a really relentlessly serious dour unenjoyable grey movie with violence in it to some of that and then some stuff that doesn't really work that is confusing that makes me kind of almost in a way long for a tone I can understand. Mm, I think because they've, they've also hired him to direct a Batgirl movie, whether or not that ends up happening. He's is... left that already, hasn't he? Has he? Okay. I think so. I, I'm sure that happened, but I'm, I don't know, it might be one of those cheeky rumours that's been going around. He he was uh, he was attached for a while, so I don't know if like that's all part of the idea of trying to keep him, uh, of of like wanting him in house and saying okay, this is kind of like your trial run to see whatever you'll do for the rest of our stuff. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why they got him so much of the way, or maybe it's just that the the executives at WB and I think there's also been a lot of turnover at, at One Brothers over the last couple of years in terms of executives, and there's been talk of like mergers and things like that and and the people involved are like um sizing up you know what kind of big successes can they push forward to ensure that they get decent amount of money from when if a merger happens and so there's like people who maybe don't have the quality of the work uh at the, the kind of the top of their mind more just a sense of we need to put the money out we need to put a movie out and we need to just make it like the movies that make money and people like um, do whatever it takes to do that, and and not and kind of not really caring about how it actually turns out. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I don't like. What's next for them? Is it the Aquaman and then Wonder Woman two? Wonder Woman two, uh, yeah, is moving apace, and Aquaman. But also they have um, Flashpoint, which is the Flash movie. But originally it was going to be like a Flash standalone movie. But Flashpoint uh, is kind of like a big comics crossover event uh which involves a lot of time travel and if uh, i remember correctly it's basically something that was used in the comics to kind of wipe a lot of continuity clean right and so the fact that they're pushing forwards with a flashpoint movie or or trying to i don't even know if they have a director attached to it anymore suggests that they're kind of thinking uh we could probably keep what works and maybe jettison some people uh maybe try and start again and uh, do a bunch of uh, retconning, which would be uh, an interesting thing to see, to see uh, in terms of moving things from the world of comics to the world of movies, to see the kind of the studio basically admitting, yeah, this shit we tried isn't working, so we're just going to start start afresh, uh, mm. but have it be an incontinuity thing as opposed to the whole, yeah, Batman and Robin was truly terrible, we're going to take eight years off until we do something else. Mm. It'd be funny if, like, it just the flashpoint ended with Brandon Ralph waking up in the shower <laughs> and being like, "Oh shit, that was weird." Um, and then, um, yeah, and then Lex Luthor is still 
um, played by Kevin Spacey, and the nightmare <laughs> is real. Yeah, uh, or um, Ryan Reynolds shows up, and then everyone's like, nah, we're good, mate. Yeah. <laughs> you go back to your successful super uh, um, uh, superhero franchise. That that was also something that I thought was really funny, was um, as I was waiting, I went to go and see Justice League with my dad, who hasn't watched any of the previous WB movies, so I thought it was interesting. I, want, I was wonder how... He seemed to he seemed to enjoy it and follow it reasonably well, but also thought a bunch of it was kind of nonsense. But mm-hmm. um, when we were waiting, someone was coming out of the previous screening and they came and like, you have to stay for the last post-credit thing. It's like, oh, okay, it's amazing. And then like, so we were waiting. And then uh, at the end of the movie, like Lex Luthor is, uh, has escaped from prison. He's on his boat. And then the character of Deathstroke gets out of the water, played by... Joe Manginello, and as we were walking out, everyone was like, Deadpool's in it! And I was like, oh, I see. That guy misunderstood and thought that that character was Deadpool, because Deathstroke is basically the character that Deadpool was a parody of. Uh, Uh, Which is why he also is called Wilson, and he looks exactly like Deadpool. So I think a lot of people were confused by his appearance, uh, and that was another thing that was probably ill-judged. It's like, maybe don't include the character that everyone will assume is this other character. Mm, I um I know who Joe Manganiello was obviously mm-hmm. because he is a uh, he's in Magic Mike movies and also a massive nerd who loves D and D and plays kind of online quite a lot um um so I thought that's cool but I had to look it up I did not know who that was yeah he's not I didn't think it was Deadpool because I know yeah. Deadpool's a Marvel character um but i didn't know who that was so i had to look it up and i also completely blanked out that jesse eisenberg was lex luther i was like fuck that happened yeah he seemed a lot calmer this time around maybe because he was just in a single scene yeah <laughs> uh, and he was just having a very boring we're going to set up the sequel uh, conversation but he mm. certainly wasn't as uh, as as manically and manic and grating as he was in batman versus superman although having said that how manic and grating he was was kind of why he was the only thing I liked about Batman vs Superman because it did really think as if seem as if he was thinking I'm going to get fired from this movie any minute now come I on made, someone fire me yeah it was like I made a mistake signing on I'm going to try and get out of this the most honourable way by giving a performance that they can't help but get me sacked and it's mm. like oh no you're going to keep me great he is the human embodiment of Harrison Ford's voiceover from the Blade Runner recap. <laughs> it was too bad to use, but they used it anyway. Talk about people who sounded disengaged. Ben Affleck did not seem to be uh, terribly engrossed in the story he was helping to tell. Yeah, um, the story where he plays a character, a rich asshole who is involved with stuff for reasons, <laughs> the murky reasons uh, that we never explore. Like, it's good to not have to spend all your time being reminded that he like dresses as a bat um, um, and punches uh, criminals because his parents were killed a long time ago because they really over-egged that pudding in uh, a lot of the previous Batman films. So it's nice not to be reminded of that. But at the same time, uh, when he turns around and they say, what's your superhero? What's your superpower? And he says, oh, I'm rich. And you laugh, and then you think, oh. <laughs> well, that makes him a terrible, unsympathetic character. Mm. I think um, also in terms of signifiers of, of what was clearly reshot, the fact that he had clearly... Uh, was not in peak physical condition by the time the reef suits came along. Like he hadn't, he's still Ben Affleck. He's still a good-looking guy. And he's still in reasonably good shape. But he gets the job done. 
there was clearly a big difference between, okay, I have worked out for six months to get in prime condition to be Batman and I haven't been working out because I don't have to do that right now. Oh, mm. we need you on set in two weeks. Shit. Mm. Uh, and them having clearly had to let the bat suit out a little bit and he kind of looked a little bit heftier, uh, a bit more of kind of like Del Boy in the, uh, mm. bat- in the um, Only Fools and Horses special than... Uh, Christian Bale. Mm. Speaking speaking of of uh, of kind of like getting in shape for a role, we were all reminded endlessly by the internet <laughs> that J.K. Simmons had really started pumping some iron for his oh so important role as uh, Commissioner Gordon, and he's on screen for a minute, possibly two, and at which point he does no physical exertion whatsoever. No, wears a trench coat. Hiding he does wear his, a trench coat. Yeah, hiding he, his his swole arms. Uh, he does some corridor walking. Mm-hmm. Um, in a scene, but that wasn't too strenuous. I, I can't really see like you know months of cardio and, and and kind of weight work needed for that. Yeah, well, he didn't skip leg day, so <laughs> he was he was able to keep up a strong rhythm in his stride. Uh, apparently, he just likes working out, and that was unrelated, but it kind of fit. It definitely fit the narrative of what would Commissioner Gordon in a uh, Zack Snyder Batman movie look like. Oh, he would be ripped to shreds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's good that he's looking after himself. Mm, yeah, yeah. Lip- lifting that Oscar. Mm, it's tough work. Using it as a weight, hoping mm. hoping to get a second one so that he can kind of do two curls at once. Yeah, because at the minute he's just got one arm massively out of proportion. <laughs> so, uh, taking that whiplash arm seriously. Mm. Um. So, so yeah, I think we have been somewhat negative about this movie. Uh, I think I'll talk about the things that I I liked. Um, Ezra Miller, I thought, was a lot of fun. I think he didn't fit in the world of uh, mm-hmm. that had been created, but I found him to be kind of endlessly fun and charming, and I liked his kind of fanboyishness uh, and kind of his series of jokes about brunch, which definitely felt like a, a Joss Whedon addition. Um, mm-hmm. Until Superman makes that joke, and then yes. it's not funny. No, although I did like their scene of them uh, deciding to race each other because it was the most purely comic booky thing that any of the DC movies have contained. Yeah, I would. The, I would give you that. Uh, of like uh, these two guys are really fast. I'm sure they would actually want to figure out who was uh, fast, and then saying, "Okay, East Coast or West Coast," and then the Flash is facing the wrong way. It's like, yep, yeah, that's that's all pretty good. Uh, I enjoyed also. The two scenes he had with Billy Crudup as his dad in prison, uh, ridiculously high-profile actor in a very underused part, but I guess setting him up for future movies or whatever. But um, I thought that they eked every kind of ounce of pathos that they could have got out of their like two sides of of dialogue. Mm. Um, well, there was that thing where he comes back to him in the second scene because there's that whole suggestion that he's been wrongly in prison for a murder he didn't commit. Mm-hmm. And then when Ezra Miller comes back at the end, he puts that bit of paper on the glass and I'm like, oh my God, he's got him a new court hearing. He was like, nope, he's just got a job and he's boasting about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you prick. <laughs> yeah, he's not, the, he's not the most helpful son. Yeah, uh, But I, I can see that they're dynamic being explored pretty well in a standalone flash movie although Mm -hmm. again if they're doing flashpoint maybe we won't get that even get that so this will have been a complete kind of waste of everyone's time but at least everyone will have got paid so i guess Mm -hmm. there's that 
I also just think, I think the reason why I didn't completely hate it is that unlike Batman versus Superman, like, no one forced Holly Hunter to drink piss. Yeah. I think that was nice. <laughs> that didn't it's occur- always a bonus that when that happens. Yeah, that's why all movies are good except for Batman vs. Superman. Because <laughs> that one makes the, the cardinal sin of forcing Holly Hunter to drink piss. Um, but, like, there, there weren't the kind of... I guess it was a movie that didn't really have a vision, uh, which I guess is also its great problem, <laughs> is that it's got about... It's got two directors competing visions plus the demands of their corporate overlords. So it's mm-hmm. all kind of... A, a kind of a terrible broth of awfulness but it also didn't have kind of a morally objectionable vision at the same time it was a movie that was about heroism and hope and I thought that for the first time they got Superman pretty much right um, when he wasn't punching people like the scenes of him just kind of interacting with, with the other characters felt pretty close to how Superman is meant to be and it seems like Whedon has a greater affinity for that character than Snyder mm-hmm. uh, in that he says hey this guy is like a hero who people like because he does heroic things and he's kind of charming so obviously he's uh, that's the way you should play him and not like a mopey arsehole who finds saving people from floods to be just such a weight on his mind um mm. So I think it was it would kind of, for me it it really felt like a movie that showed a lot of potential for what you know if DC keeps these characters on and these actors playing these characters and if they hire better people uh, people with kind of less oppressive visions than Zack Snyder has brought to them mm-hmm. then you could have something really interesting and potentially pretty good in the same way that you know Wonder Woman was good because. Patty Jenkins had a very different conception of what that character should be and the way in which that world should be depicted. And, and it was so removed narratively from the, the Snyder stuff that it could actually function and be, you know, this this really, really good introduction for this character. And, you know, I, I kind of walked out of it thinking, that wasn't very good, but I'm kind of hopeful about what it portends if it doesn't just completely destroy the um, the DCEU. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't think of anything <laughs> I liked about it, I'll be honest. Um, That's fair. Yeah, like, I was kind of embarrassed to be watching it, and <laughs> there was only, like, ten other people in my screening, and as soon as... Because I stayed all the way to both... Um, like end of credits and everything and behind me was sat um like five like dude bros who i was Mm. like oh my god i I can't be sat here next to these guys and at the end as soon as it went quiet one of them just went what the fuck were that (laughs) (laughs) and i was just like you have just summed up how exactly i felt through most of that movie I I just think I that I've got no goodwill for the DCEU anymore. And mm. I like, even when I watched Wonder Woman, which was way more likable than all the other films, um I'm I'm still been so burnt by it. And this is by someone who has literally no expectations for it at all. I've just been so let down as a human by those <laughs> movies and as like a someone with like eyes and a brain that mm-hmm. it just it just offends me to my very core after Suicide Squad and the, the two like super hit, Superman films, that I just don't care anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I can see it, that. It, and maybe that maybe Wonder Woman was actually excellent, but because I don't care, I only only came out like kind of six out of ten on it. 
Yeah, I think because, like, for me, like, growing up, I loved all the Batman, everything Batman-related. Like, I used to watch the Tim Burton movies relentless, uh, uh, endlessly. I, I loved the animated series and then all the various spin-offs of that, which introduced, like, Wonder Woman and Superman and all that sort of stuff. Like, I just really want those characters to get a decent treatment on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so anything that kind of makes you think, okay, someone somewhere has a good idea of how to do these characters, uh, you know, kind of appeals to me, even if like in the final analysis, like I can't, I would never really recommend people see Justice League. Like people at work were asking me about it this week. It's like, hey, did you go and see Justice League? And I said, yeah. It's like, what do you think? I think mm, you can wait for it to hit DVD, but still not saying they should see it. <laughs> Just like, don't don't spend your money. <laughs> don't spend too much money wait for it to hit Redbox red or HBO but it's not something that it's not an essential piece of the canon it's not even an, it's not even the best movie featuring either Wonder Woman or Batman this year because you've got <laughs> Wonder yeah. Woman and the Lego Batman movie both of which do a much better job yeah and that's the thing is that like I do agree that Ezra Miller did inject some kind of humour into it but then when he's making jokes about um you know, them talking about Batman and everyone not knowing he's Bruce Wayne and that joke had already been made better three years ago in the Lego movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you're kind of clutching at straws. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? So, um, for, I mean, I don't know what's next. I mean, I'll probably go and see it just so we can talk about it. But, like, yeah, yeah for me, the DCEU is, it needs some kind of a huge kind of shift towards not shit films mm. in order to make me give a shit. Yeah, and this definitely, you know, it may have in some, in my view, been a step in the right direction in some regards, but overall just kind of a mess. But uh, commercially, uh, I don't think it's uh, going to do them any favours because currently uh, it's got 100, like I said, it's got 197.3 million and uh, to comparison, in comparison, that means it's seventy-eight million dollars behind where Wonder Woman was at this point, sixty-five million behind where Suicide Squad was, ninety-nine million behind where Batman vs Superman was, and fifty-one million behind where Man of Steel was. And Wowza. that's that's that would be bad for just in general for any big budget movie, but for something that was meant to be the culmination of this whole thing and kind of like this big the thing that was going to take them into the next echelon in the way that the the Avengers did. Uh, I think it's been fair to say it's been been a misfire. Yeah. All, all told, it hasn't quite worked out for him. Yeah, and none of the actors or people involved seem that enthused by doing anything. Like, Ben Affleck has been so kind of, like, non-committal towards being in Batman. Even Even when he says, I'm committed to being in Batman, I think you would rather be doing anything else than being Batman right now. Hmm. Yeah. This is this is like what what is he possibly going to add to the Batman mythos that uh, he has tried and failed to do in three movies so far? Yeah, and uh, so much so that you know the talk of him not even being in that standalone Batman movie that Matt Reeves is working on, and mm. they're kind of getting around it by saying, "Well, it could be it could be set earlier in his career. He's kind of like an older Batman, so we could set it in the eighties and cast someone else." And then you kind of think, and yeah, and then by the time they get to the next kind of present day Batman movie, he has slimmed down and turned into Jake Gyllenhaal, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Who is yeah. the current front runner? Uh, and uh, I don't think it's a bad choice, but it's a bad choice for him because I think he could do other things. 
<laughs> yeah, literally anything. He could do literally anything and it would be better. That yeah. was the that's kind of like the sad thing with whenever we talk about people being cast in superhero movies or, or whatever. It's like when you look at someone like Ezra Miller who has been doing a lot of really interesting work in lower budget movies uh and smaller movies over the last kind of like five, six years, you look at his slate of movies now and it's pretty much all playing the Flash or playing his character in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And you kind of think, probably for the bank balance, it's pretty good, but Mm -hmm. we're probably losing a lot of good work that he could have been doing in a lot of other movies if he wasn't spending, like, four months, four or five months of the year working on a Harry Potter movie and four or five months of the year working on a DC movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's movies these days, big franchises, and if you're not in them, you're, you're lagging behind. Uh, asking your agent what he was thinking. Yep. So we end this episode as we end all of our episodes with SRS Recommends, in which we talk about something that we've enjoyed and that we think that you, our listeners, may enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for us this week? Uh, I'm going to recommend not a piece of culture, but a creative endeavour. Those of you who follow me on Twitter and Instagram might know that I've recently completed NaNoWriMo, uh, which is... For those who don't know, uh, National Novel Writing Month, I would recommend heartily anyone who has any kind of creative desire in their life um, or any kind of um, uh, kind of thought to write anything uh, to do NaNoWriMo. It's a um, kind of community organization that does a thing every November, where on November the 1st you sign into uh, a free kind of like interface, a bit like Facebook with a profile and everything, and you start writing a novel on November the 1st, and on November the 30th you have to have finished it and written at least 50,000 words, and you can update your word count every day, you can see how people in your area are doing, you get pep talks emailed to you by famous authors this year, we had uh, Roxine, uh, Roxanne Gay and Dean Coots and like a bunch of other people like send us emails and saying, you know, keep going, you're doing great etc etc um and the idea is to kind of cut out your inner editor everyone knows someone who is writing a book who has been taking forever about it and not getting it finished the idea of NaNoWriMo is to get it out of you and just get it onto the page and worry about it later because at the end of 30 days you should have written it you can say oh dude like I wrote a novel in 30 days I can't remember what I wrote (laughs) because I was writing so fast I didn't have to stop and have a look and obsess over every word but I got it finished and now I have a lot of time to work on it and hone it and rewrite it and you probably will rewrite a lot of it and a lot of it will go but the idea is to kind of just get it out there doesn't work for everyone but i have to say i found it the most creatively rewarding thing i've ever done i've done it twice now uh the first time which i kind of realized now i did mainly to see if i could just write fifty thousand words in in 30 days Hmm. um because what came out made no sense whatsoever and was not worth revising which is cool because at least i know now the idea wasn't quite uh, up to snuff but this time around uh written a uh, young adult novel um and i kind of think that's got something to it and i'm going to come back to it in january i printed it out put it in an envelope put it in a drawer forgotten about it and we'll come back to it next year and see where it's at and rewrite it but the point is of recommending this is if you actually have any kind of creative desire at all and you do have a you're like me you're someone who sometimes is very kind of like um, hard to motivate to actually get like get in a chair and sit in front of a computer and actually do it because it feels like a mountain to climb it is a great way of getting out there and it is like so so rewarding to actually type the end or however you want to finish your novel I mean that's quite hackney to do that <laughs> um, but then to say fuck I just wrote a book dude <laughs> like that is 
kind of a pretty intense creative feeling. And, and the organisation, the people who do it, the, the guys who run NaNoWriMo are really amazing. And they put all the money they make from it, which comes from donations and sponsorship and things like that. They put into uh, writers' programmes, community action, and it's all like a like a big non-profit thing, and they're super cool. Um, and I'd recommend that this to uh, the listeners this week. If you have any desire to write anything, do it through NaNoWriMo, because it is a, a really good way to get the creative juices flowing and not worry about anything which is often the thing that holds people back. Fantastic, yeah. I, uh, I've i tried it a few times in the past and never quite managed it. Maybe I'll try it next year and see if I can think of a... Like, even just, like you say, try and write 50,000 words a month. I think it'd be at least something to do. Mm. Uh, even if... Because like, cause I always get really caught up on the idea of, like, okay, you need to have it kind of, like, planned out before you start. And then, like, almost anyone I've ever spoken to about writing is like... Uh, it's nice, but really, you should just kind of sit there and bang it out and see if see what kind of sticks, and then mm. if something good comes out of it, then you know, kind of build on that. Yeah, I had uh, a genuine, like a rough idea and an ending, a kind of mm. just an idea of an ending, and then a couple of scenes in the middle that revolved around characters I'd kind of had in my head, and yeah. then as I started writing it, most of that just didn't make it. And I kept thinking, oh, I've got to squeeze this idea in that I had before, and then I was like, mm, that doesn't fit now, so. Yeah, see you later. But the having the idea was the genesis of the idea that then, then kind of organically morphed into something else. So it's yeah, it's a great creative experience for. And like the thing is, I could come back to this stuff next year and read it and think, what the fuck was I thinking? Like that is terrible. But at least you know, and it's better mm. to not die wondering. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, I'm going to recommend a movie. A movie uh, briefly mentioned earlier on. Uh, because it's winning a bunch of awards and it deserves to, is Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, which is her debut solo directing movie. She had previously co-directed a movie with Joe Swanberg, uh, one of the many mumblecore movies that she was involved with early in her career before kind of evolving past that through her collaborations with Noah Baumbach and also weird commercial ventures, like that time she was in the remake of Arthur, which mm. I think most people have forgotten about. Um but this is uh, is a, a, a her movie that she wrote and directed, starring Saoirse Ronan as uh, a, a girl called Ladybird, who's a seventeen year old in Cal- in Sacramento, California, in the year two thousand and three, and it's about her in her last year before she goes to college, and she's in a kind of Catholic school, and it's about the year between her uh, her the the kind of uh, the, the starting school that year, and then graduating and going to college at the end of it, and her you know, kind of sexual awakening through the various kind of young uh, men that she gets involved with, including uh, Lucas Hedges, uh, who was great in uh, Manchester by the Sea last year, or um, uh, the the aforementioned Timothy Chalamet, who plays kind of uh, vaguely anarchist, vaguely nihilist uh, rich kid who talks about how they want to go back to a barter system, but they can say that because they live in a really nice house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I certainly know a few people who fit that description when I was at school. Mm-hmm. And I, there's a lot of it. And and that's kind of one of the things that's great about it. It's a really funny movie. It's got lots of great jokes. It's got an amazing cast. In addition to Saoirse Ronan, you've got Laurie Metcalf playing her mum. You've got uh, Tracy Letts playing her dad. You've got uh, all of these various people in, in kind of supporting roles who are really, really fun. Like I said, Hedges, Chalamet. Uh, but the thing about it that I love is it, it just rings very, very true, even though 
like I, you know, I went to school in England in the, you know, the opposite side of the world in a very, very different situation to the the character of Lady Bird in the movie. But uh, I recognised a lot of it. I think thought there was a lot of truth to it in about, you know, growing up at that particular point in history and in terms of that kind of particular atmosphere. And uh, I just thought it was it was just really funny, really sweet movie. It's really hard to dislike anything about it you know the whole cast is very winning and and everything about it just feels true and heartfelt and lovely uh and i think uh it's one of my it's not my favorite movie of the year but it's certainly in my top 10 and i think uh, it's a movie that people would find it very hard not to not to like and uh, very easy to love hmm yeah that's something that is i thought was going to drop before christmas here but it turns out it's out um, kind of January, February. Um, I wonder if that'll be brought forward to, so people can see it, um, or whether it will just stick for the uh, for the kind of the award stuff. But I'm excited to see Greta Gerwig um, busting out of the indie circle because um, th- this will get uh, awards consideration, like you say, mm. um, which is really great because it's nice to see stuff um, that's like a little bit more uh, challenging, and it's good to see people like her and Jordan Peele reaping the rewards of being just so awesome for so long and, and be shouting about them for ages and then all of a sudden uh, the wider world realises, which is really lovely. Yeah, it, it certainly... I wasn't expecting uh, back in like January or whatever, the, the end of the year, they would be kind of like the two marquee names around which award season would be revolving. Mm. Uh, but I'm very happy that that is the case because, uh, yeah... I've been a big fan of, of Jordan Peele's work for a long time. Uh, Greg Gerwig obviously was uh, in Francis Ha, which is one of my favourite movies of the decade. Uh, and she's just always good in everything, pretty much. So uh, it's nice that suddenly they are at the, the centre of the conversation about what what good movies are out this year. Mm, yeah, absolutely. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, all the usual places. Recommend us to your friends. It helps us grow our audience. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.